This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So, how did you and Amy meet? We met on a blind date, and uh, my third year of law school, my father-in-law's best friend, Uncle John, he told me that Amy was moving back to town and I should give her a call. And, and was it like, did you click right away? Amy's version is that she fell in love with me when she opened the door and that I fell in love with her a year later, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, we definitely clicked, for sure. This is Jason Rosenthal. He's a lawyer in Chicago. I mostly do personal injury litigation. Represent the little guy against the big guy. But many of you might know Jason because of something else. He's the husband of children's book author Amy Krauss Rosenthal. And in March of 2017, Amy wrote an essay for the New York Times Modern Love section that ultimately went viral. The essay was called, You May Want to Marry My Husband. I've been trying to write this for a while, but the morphine and lack of juicy cheeseburgers, what has it been now, five weeks without real food, have drained my energy and interfered with whatever prose prowess remains. This is actually the voice of actress Deborah Winger. She's reading from Amy's essay, and it was featured on the Modern Love podcast. Still, I have to stick with it because I'm facing a deadline. In this case, a pressing one. I need to say this and say it right while I have A, your attention, and B, a pulse. Amy wrote this piece while she was battling cancer. The column is a witty, touching, and heartbreaking play on a personal ad for her husband, who she knew she would leave behind. First, the basics. He's five foot 10, 160 pounds, with salt and pepper hair and hazel eyes. The following list of attributes is in no particular order because everything feels important. Just 10 days after this essay was published, Amy passed away. I was aware that she had one final project that she wanted to do. And I watched her write this piece as she sat across from me on the couch, working away, taking little micro naps, working away, you know, and repeating that process. And it wasn't until she was completely done with it that she asked me to read it that I knew what it was. And what did you think when you read it? I was blown away first and foremost at the writing and her ability to combine what she always did, her whimsy and her humor, and how incredibly intelligent she was into this type of piece. And I, I gave her my full blessing, guy not knowing or having any clue whatsoever about what it would become. Amy's husband, Jason Rosenthal, picks up the story from the TED stage. There are three words that explain why I am here. They are Amy Krauss Rosenthal. At the end of Amy's life, hyped up on morphine and home and hospice, the New York Times published an article she wrote for the Modern Love column on March 3, 2017. It was read worldwide by over five million people. While it was certainly about our life together, the focus of the piece was me. Amy was my wife for half my life. She was my partner in raising three wonderful, now-grown children. And really, she was my girl. You know, we were in love, and our love grew stronger up until her last day. Now, my story of grief is only unique in the sense of it being rather public. However, the grieving process itself is not my story alone. 
Amy gave me permission to move forward, and I'm so grateful for that. Death is such a taboo subject, right? Amy ate her last meal on January 9th, 2017. She somehow lived an additional two months without solid food. Her doctors told us we could do hospice at home or in the hospital. He did not tell us that Amy would shrink to half her body weight, that she would never lay with her husband again, and that walking upstairs to our bedroom would soon feel like running a marathon. I want to get a little personal here and tell you. That to this date, I have memories of those final weeks that haunt me. I remember walking backwards to the bathroom, assisting Amy with each step. I felt so strong. I'm not such a big guy, but my arms looked and felt so healthy compared to Amy's frail body.、And、that body failed in our house. On March 13th of last year, my wife died of ovarian cancer in our bed. I carried her lifeless body down our stairs, through our dining room and our living room, to a waiting gurney to have her body cremated. I will never get that image out of my head. You,、um, in your talk, you specifically describe death as a it's a taboo topic, especially in the West. Like we just don't we don't like to talk about it. It scares us.、Um, but you you wanted to be really explicit in your descriptions about what what dying is.、Um, can you tell me about about why you you wanted to do that? Yeah, I just felt like. You know, well, when I first started to think about really being that explicit, I, I sort of just warned my family that, you know, this is going to get a little bit raw, and I wanted everyone to understand that. But the reason I did it is because I knew that I could not be alone in having these feelings and living with these images that I do live with even up to now, and that I wanted to take some of that stigma, that taboo, out of it. And encourage people to access that and to talk about it, because it shouldn't be something that we're so very afraid of. If we're ready, I think, if we know what to expect a little bit, I'm hopeful that it won't be as as difficult. So, is there a way we can talk about dying without fear? And make plans for the inevitable while we still have the time. Can there be beauty, even in death? Well, today on the show, we're going to explore those ideas and what it means to prepare for the end of our own life and the lives of those we love. Which is ultimately what Amy's essay was trying to do for Jason Rosenthal, trying to prepare him for her death by giving him the space. To move on. It's an incredibly beautiful, warm, and also very funny column、um, for the 1.1 percent of people who don't know it who might be listening.、Um, she says, "Hey, you know,、uh, there's this great guy. He's available."、Um, <laughs> was that just like Amy's way of of doing things? Was that just her style? Oh man, I I don't know. I think you know for the most part that was her way of expressing her love for me. But at the time, I didn't think, oh wow, you know, I'm gonna find someone to love because Amy said I should. But as time has gone by, I just can't explain to you enough how liberating the idea of her giving me that blessing, and also you know the deeper conversations that we've had has helped me. I want more time with Jason. I want more time with my children. I want more time sipping martinis at the Green Mill Jazz Club on Thursday nights. But that is not going to happen. I probably have only a few days left being a person on this planet. So why am I doing this? 
I am wrapping this up on Valentine's Day, and the most genuine, non-vase-oriented gift I can hope for is that the right person reads this, finds Jason, and another love story begins. I'll leave this intentional empty space ahead as a way of giving you two the fresh start you deserve. In Japanese Zen, there is a term shoji, which translates as birth-death. There is no separation between life and death, other than a thin line that connects the two. Birth, or the joyous, wonderful, vital parts of life, and death, those things we want to get rid of, are said to be faced equally. In this new life that I find myself in, I am doing my best to embrace this concept as I move forward with grieving. Do you sort of feel like you hit milestones every, you know, every few months or every few weeks that that something changes in a way that you kind of feel and you, I don't know, just visceral? Yeah, I would say yes. Um, but there's also literal milestones that happen that are incredibly emotional and you just don't know how you're going to get through them. You know, one of the first ones was that my son graduated college. And he'd been doing his best to keep up with his studies while Amy was sick, and he sure did that. Uh, and he graduated, and there we were. You know, that was that was tough. Um, my anniversary, the date of my anniversary, uh, for whatever reason, was much, much more difficult than, you know, Amy's birthday or other occasions. Um, so I think we travel through those spots along the way. Uh, but there's always, I think maybe because of Amy, who she was, there's always something that reminds me of us together in our life. And I don't think that's ever going to change. That's Jason Rosenthal. His late wife, Amy Krauss Rosenthal, wrote an essay called You May Want to Marry My Husband. You can hear Jason's full talk at TED.com. And you can hear more from Amy's essay on the New York Times and WBUR podcast, Modern Love. On the show today, ideas about death, dying, and saying goodbye. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. The CreditWise app recently added dual bureau credit alerts from Experian and TransUnion to help users more quickly identify signs of error, theft, or fraud. Here's CreditWise designer Bev Yang. The alerts that we just released send a user a message so that it's like, hey, just so you know, this is what's different, and they can focus on the new information to decide what they want to do. CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store right now. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash ideas. And Chioki? Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Hey, Tamara. Hey, Domenico. All week long, Brett Kavanaugh will face his Senate confirmation hearings. Yeah, he's President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, and there are going to be a lot of questions about how he could transform the Supreme Court for a generation. The NPR Politics Podcast will be following those hearings, and we'll hop in the studio every day to break down what you need to know. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. 
I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas around how we engage with death. So first of all, Emily, can you can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Emily Levine. I am 73 years old and dying, supposedly. It's taking longer than they said it would, which is obviously very good and alternately not so good. Um, when you were diagnosed, what, what was the prognosis? Well, it took a long time to determine what kind of cancer it was, and I asked the oncologist about the prognosis, and he said if it's lung cancer a year, and if it's breast cancer, uh, at least two years. And I said, well, that's a year is enough. I thought, well, I'll just read books that I read when I was a child that I loved, like The Once and Future King, Alice in Wonderland, and see friends. So I did that for a while, but, you know, I didn't die. <laughs> and I continued not to die. I haven't been losing weight. <laughs> for the first time in my life, I get on this scale praying that I haven't lost any weight. So I'm still counting calories. That part's the same, but the hope for the outcome is different. Now, Emily spent most of her life writing and performing comedy. She calls herself a philosopher-comedian. So naturally, she decided she would engage with death using humor. Here's Emily Levine on the TED stage. I have uh, stage four lung cancer. I'm so okay with it. And granted, I have certain advantages. Not everybody can take so cavalier an attitude. I don't have young children. I don't have huge financial stress. Uh, my cancer isn't that aggressive. It's kind of like the democratic leadership. <laughs> Not convinced it can win. It's basically just sitting there waiting for Goldman Sachs to give it some money. <laughs> but what if you don't have my advantages? The only advice I can give you is to do what I did. Make friends with reality. You couldn't have a worse relationship with reality than I did. From the get-go, I wasn't even attracted to reality. If they'd had Tinder when I met reality, I would have swiped left and the whole thing would have been over. <laughs> And reality and I, I didn't just come to terms with it, I fell in love. I should have known that the moment I fell in love with reality, the rest of the country would decide to go in the opposite direction. <laughs> so I don't understand, I simply just don't understand the mindset of people who are out to defeat death and overcome death. I, how do you do that? How do you defeat death without killing off life? I, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to be immortal. I have no, I have no interest in having my name live on after me. In, in fact, I don't want it to. We won't ever be able to know everything or control everything or predict everything. Nature is like a self-driving car. The best we can be is like the old woman in that joke. I don't know if you've heard it. A woman, an old woman is driving with her a middle-aged daughter in the passenger seat, and the mother goes right through a red light. And the daughter doesn't want to say anything that makes it sound like, you're too old to drive, so she didn't say anything. And then the mother goes through a second red light, and the daughter, as tactfully as possible, says, Mom, are you aware that you just went through two red lights? And the mother says, oh, am I driving? <laughs> We humans seem to be obsessed with legacy and memory. I mean, we, we, we memorialize everybody who goes, right? In, in gravestones yep. and in foundations, on park benches. Um, we want to be remembered, right? And does that make sense to you, that, that instinct? No. no, it doesn't. No. I just, I just read that Florence Nightingale refused to be photographed until Queen Victoria insisted upon it hmm. because Florence Nightingale said, and I quote, I wish to be forgotten. Hmm. That makes more sense to me. Why? You're going to live on in the memories of your loved ones, 
until there's no one alive to remember you, and then you're done. You're going to be forgotten at some point, whether it's five years from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now, 500 years from now. You're going to be forgotten at some point. Get over it. Do you are you like Florence Nightingale? Do you do you not want to be remembered? I'm ambivalent about it. I mean, aside from my daughter and my sisters and nieces, etc., and my friends. But on the other hand, I care about what I have to say. I think it's important. So, I guess I do want that remembered in some way. The thing for me is there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than when someone else takes an idea of mine and makes it his or her own. I want the ideas to have a life and be remembered. I don't care if it's me. I love being in sync with the cyclical rhythms of the universe. That's what's so extraordinary about life. It's a cycle of generation, degeneration, regeneration. I am just a collection of particles that is arranged into this pattern, then will decompose and be available, all of its constituent parts, to nature to reorganize into another pattern. Uh, To me, that is so exciting, and it makes me even more grateful to be part of that process. You know, uh, I look at death now from the point of view of a German uh, biologist, Andreas Weber, who looks at it as part of the gift economy. You're given this enormous gift, life, you enrich it as best you can, and then you give it back. And, you know, Auntie Mame said, life is a banquet. Well, I've eaten my fill. I have had an enormous appetite for life. I've consumed life, but in death, I'm going to be consumed. I invite every microbe and a treatiser and a composer to have their... I think they'll find me delicious. (laughs) I do. So the best thing about my attitude, I think, is that it's real. My life has certainly been enriched by other people. Reality comes into being through an interaction. Thank you so much for making my life real. Thank you. Do you... Do you feel like you've done everything you wanted to do? Um... No, probably. Does anyone? Hmm, yeah. Good point. But it doesn't... It doesn't disturb me. You know... When the doctor first said it's cancer, my first thought was, oh, I've had a wonderful life. And then I thought, my mother died of cancer when she was 55. And nobody suspected that it was cancer. They performed surgery and opened up her abdomen thinking there was some kind of blockage and found ovarian cancer. And when she woke up from the anesthetic, my father told her, and she said, oh, I've had a wonderful life. Hmm. And I remember over the years, I've wondered whether that was an authentic response or whether she was just trying to make my father feel better because my father was devastated. So in that moment, I realized, no, it was an authentic response because that's the response I had. And my second thought was, I've explored as much as I'm going to be able to explore in this lifetime, and I enjoyed exploring it. And now I'll explore death. And my imagination has always been my best friend. Here was a challenge worthy of my imagination. I thought of it as a creative challenge, that everybody dies in a different way, and how was I going to do it? That's Emily Levine. She's a comedian and a writer. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Do you think it's possible to, uh, to die well? I think it is possible to, to die well in the sense that you can take some ownership around how you want your final moments on this earth to be. 
This is Michelle Knox. She's a travel blogger who's been to over 90 countries. And Michelle started thinking a lot about death and how to better cope with it a couple of years ago when her dad got sick. He had a progressive lung disease and he knew he was he was is dying and he actually had three very clear wishes that he shared with us as his family. And they were that he wanted to die at home, he wanted to, to die surrounded by family, and he wanted to die peacefully, so not choking or gasping for air. And fortunately, with modern medicine, we were able to support those wishes. We were able to have him come home, care for him in the home. And it made it so much easier knowing that everything we did we did in support of his wishes. And for him, death is still death. There's no getting around that. And there is always going to be a form of suffering at the end for, I think, most people. And we can't pretend that that's not there. But what we can do is allow people to make some decisions around how they want their their care to be. If we'd had these conversations sooner uh, and, and got it out in the open, things would be a little bit easier. After her dad passed away, Michelle set out to better understand what a good death can look like. So she started having conversations about death on her travels. She read books on the subject, and she attended nearly a dozen funerals. So through my learnings over the last two years, it's about understanding, okay, I appreciate that one day I am going to die. So if I take a step back while I'm young and while I'm healthy... And I think about things that are important to me and maybe share that with my family and friends. I will have a better chance of experiencing a healthy, a healthy death at some point in the distant future. And my family will have some idea of, of you know, what's important to me and, and how to honor me when I do pass. I mean, most of us, right, when we're able and, uh, and healthy, most of us actively avoid thinking about death because... Death is scary. I think most people w- would agree that it's. we just don't want to think about it. That's true. Uh, we don't want to think about it. And most people will shut it down if you bring it up. And for quite some time, I've been wondering why, given it's something that impacts every single living being on this planet is impacted by death at some point, why have we as societies shut this down and don't talk about it? So I think that's part of the challenge is that somewhere in there we've decided that this is a really tough conversation and and then we don't know how to talk about ourselves. Michelle Knox picks up her idea from the TED stage. So let's get going. Do you know what you want when you die? Do you know how you want to be remembered? Is location important? Do you want to be near the ocean or in the ocean? <sighs> Do you want a religious service or an informal party? Or do you want to go out with a bang? Literally, in a firework. All right. Note to self. Talk about my death. Yes. Okay, I'm writing this down now. Okay, good. Excellent. So what's your perfect death? Like, you know, just kind of sketch it out for me. How how do you want to die? I had my palm read in India recently, and I was told I will live till I'm 86, so I'm okay with that. All right, okay, 86, pretty good. And I plan to die in my sleep. That's like the golden ticket of death. It is. That's that's what I'm going for. So the next step is uh, I've let my family know. I, I have a will, which is very important, and I want to be cremated. I would like a service where I'm honored and remembered, and most importantly, they're drinking French champagne. We'll start with that. There will definitely be some music and potentially a bit of Dancing Queen from ABBA. My honoring of my passing will be a celebration. I would like everyone to leave going, well, she lived her life by her own rules and boy, did she do it well. That's what I hope for. So, I mean, do you think like the rest of us can do that? Like, do you think it's possible to rewire our brains so that, you know, death is like this joyful thing we celebrate? Or, I mean, do you think that just kind of defies, you know, who we are as humans? No, I think we can redefine this. And I think we're starting to, and I think it's, what it really stems from, it's not so much reprogramming the brain, but bringing it more into everyday conversation, acknowledging that death is part of life. And what we should be doing is celebrating the life of someone, particularly if they've lived a long, fulfilling 
life and, and bringing that to the surface and honouring their memory with, with their life journey. I've been to 10 funerals in the last year, one of which I helped arrange. They ran the full gamut. A very solemn Greek Orthodox service, full Catholic requiem masses, and a garden party where I made a toast while scattering my friend's ashes around her garden with a soup ladle. <laughs> I have carried, kissed, written on and toasted coffins with a shot of ouzo. I have worn all black, all colour, and a party dress. Despite the vast differences in send-off, despite me being at times out of my comfort zone doing something I've never done before, I drew comfort from one thing, knowing that this is what each person would have wanted. Through your travels and the people that you've met and encountered, have you, have you come across a culture or a community that just deals with death better than, you know, people in the West, for example, do? Uh, I would say my experience, uh, Buddhist communities uh, really face it head on in a really practical way. And I was actually traveling in Nepal. I was up in the, the Himalayas. And one night I was spent the whole night awake hearing these horns being blown. And in the morning I was just standing outside in a little piece of sunshine that was shining down on this one spot when this procession came past me. And part of the procession was a body and it was a monk who'd passed away during the night. And the village all comes out and, and walk down and they go and do the procession after this, honoring the person's passing. And it was quite confronting because it's the first time I'd seen someone who'd passed away. But it was just done with such practical application, I suppose. There's such an acceptance that death is part of life and there's a way in which it's, it's honored that I actually realized probably the fear that we have in the Western culture is this attachment to our human form mm. and the fear of not knowing what happens next. I think across all cultures, we believe one of three things. We either believe we're going somewhere else, somewhere better. We believe we're being reincarnated or we believe nothing happens and we return to the earth. Hmm. And through all my travels, and I have been to almost about 90 countries now in my over the years, wow. I've not seen anything different than those three possibilities. Huh. And even if in different cultures we have different beliefs, I just absolutely know that uh, talking about this topic will enable you to have, to some degree, a, a good death, however that looks, and also a healthy bereavement. Um, grief is always going to be grief and it is part of life and we will never be able to remove that aspect but we can remove guilt and fear and stress and anxiety we can work on those things that's travel blogger Michelle Knox you can see her full talk at TED.com on the show today ideas about dying well I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to a few of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com hour. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks also to State Street. State Street Global Advisors has teamed up with Elizabeth Banks to make a series of podcasts and films that uncover the bold moves mid-cap companies make to thrive and survive. Each episode goes deep into the ideas that are crazy enough to work, which is the name of the series. You can download the podcast now or just search for Crazy Enough to Work to watch the films. Provided by State Street Global Advisors Funds Distributors, LLC. Finally, thanks to Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. 
As soon as you wake up, you need the latest. That's why Up First is here. It's NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes or so, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about dying well, grief, and even how we take care of the dead. I would be in the crematory about to cremate a body and realize that it was me and this person alone in this industrial warehouse. This is Caitlin Doty. She's a mortician. Why was it me? I was some random 25-year-old girl. Why was I the one alone with your father doing this procedure, sending him into the sacred flame for his final moment on Earth? Why was that just me? And why was it in this warehouse? And and how did we get to this place? I, I knew the history, so I knew that people used to take care of their dead from start to finish, from dying process to disposition, burial or cremation. And here we are in the 21st century, and it had become... Uh, yeah, efficient, sure, but where is the where is the humanity in that? Did did people used to have a healthier attitude about death like a long time ago? I would say absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not really in the position to rank people on their <laughs> or rank cultures or or time periods on their levels of acceptance, but I will say even if you want to look at 150 years ago in America, when someone died, they died at home. The family took care of the body. They were prepared and waked in the home. Some neighbor built a wooden coffin, and the person was carried on the family's shoulders to be buried. And it was entirely interactive and entirely family-based. And in that 150-year time to where we are now, we've completely outsourced every part of the dying and death process. Mm. And of course, it's going to affect our culture. It's going to affect how we see death and how comfortable we are with death. But I think people are starting to realize that maybe that's not the best system. Caitlin Doty picks up her idea from the TED stage. In America, our death traditions have come to be chemical embalming, followed by burial at your local cemetery, or more recently, cremation. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and its economic model is based on the principle of protection, sanitation, and beautification of the corpse. Whether they mean to or not, the funeral industry promotes this idea of human exceptionalism. Doesn't matter what it takes, how much it costs, how bad it is for the environment, we're going to do it because humans are worth it. It ignores the fact that death can be an emotionally messy and complex affair, and that there is beauty in decay, beauty in the natural return to the earth from whence we came. We'll start with a dead body. The funeral industry will protect your dead body by offering to sell your family a casket made of hardwood or metal with a rubber sealant. At the cemetery on the day of burial, that casket will be lowered into a large concrete or metal vault. When you choose burial at the cemetery, your dead body is not coming anywhere near the dirt that surrounds it. Next, the industry will sanitize your body through embalming, the chemical preservation of the dead. Embalming is a cheat code providing the illusion that death and then decay are not the natural end for all organic life on this planet. Finally, the industry will beautify the corpse. They'll put it in makeup. They'll put it in a suit. They'll inject dyes so the person looks a little more alive, just resting. Now, if this system of beautification, sanitation, protection doesn't appeal to you, you are not alone. There is a whole wave of people, funeral directors, designers, environmentalists, trying to come up with a more eco-friendly way of death. There's no question that our current methods of death are not particularly sustainable, what with the waste of resources and our reliance on chemicals. Even cremation, 
which is usually considered the environmentally friendly option, uses, per cremation, the natural gas equivalent of a 500-mile car trip. So, so it seems like, like over several years of, of being in this industry, you've, you've come to the conclusion that the, the way we handle bodies, at least in the U.S. and, and in Western countries, uh, it isn't just misguided, but it's, it's not environmentally sustainable. Yeah, and so if someone is more environmentally minded during their life, they're going to want a chance to actually go back to the earth. And we now call it natural or green burial. But for thousands of years of human history, they just called it burial <laughs> because that's what it was. They didn't have all these bells and whistles and protective devices we have now. So a natural burial is simply a hole that's actually much shallower than in a conventional cemetery because all of the good decaying mechanisms are in that topsoil. And then you're in just a simple cotton shroud, or you can have a casket that's very decomposable, like a wicker casket, for instance, or a seagrass casket. And you go underneath the ground, and sometimes you can have a headstone, sometimes not. But it's really just, it couldn't be any more simple. It seems like what you're talking about isn't just a you know, which isn't just a method of being buried, but it's about something bigger, right? That that it's it's almost like a philosophical outlook that we're just, you know, we're just another animal. We're going to die. And like there's a cycle here and we might as well be part of that cycle. Like we might as well become food for other creatures and nutrients. Yeah, exactly. Like I've, I've taken more than my fair share sure. of things that have hurt the earth. And why am I going to continue to hurt the earth when I die? Even just even if it's symbolic, why am I not saying I care about stewardship? And something that I'm very excited about is something called conservation burial. And what that is, is a bit of like natural burial plus in the sense that it's land that might be developed on otherwise, but once you bury a few bodies there, they can't develop on it. Ah. And so a lot of the money for your burial goes to long-term stewardship of this land. And beyond that, they're, they're reintroducing native plants to the land. It becomes a place that's comfortable for, you know, to walk your dog or to, to come do yoga or meditate. It becomes this communal atmosphere again in the way that... Yeah. That cemeteries used to be. So instead of these like manicured lawn type cemeteries, you would just kind of find a, a natural area. And as people get buried there naturally, it becomes kind of you know, protected conservation land. Exactly. There's hope in conservation cemeteries. They offer dedicated green space in both urban and rural areas. They offer a chance to reintroduce native plants and animals to a region. They offer public trails, places for spiritual practice, places for classes and events, places where nature and mourning meet. Most importantly, they offer us, once again, a chance to just decompose in a hole in the ground. The soil, let me tell you, has missed us. So, so Caitlin, you you actually do um, some of these conservation burials uh, outside of LA in, in Joshua Tree, right? Yeah, and and I've stood there as someone buried their mother, and they just hand fill the grave, <laughs> and the person just disappears into the desert. And you can see them working out their grief as they are shoveling the dirt. So it's it's almost like there's a connection between between a natural uh, or, or conservation burial and making death less painful. I think it's almost kind of a metaphor. The body's under there decomposing, and it's and it's messy and it's wild, as your grief is and as it should be. It's supposed to be messy and wild and difficult and a journey. You're not supposed to trap your emotions in a box underground and don't let anything touch it. You're supposed to feel your feelings because that's the only way through death. And I think accepting that that's what's going to happen to your body also helps you accept that that's what's going to happen in your mind and your grief process. <laughs> People are so afraid to be interested in death. They don't want to seem morbid. 
But death is the natural end to every single person's life. If you're not going to be interested in death, if that's not the universal experience, what is? Kaylin Doty, she's a mortician in L.A., where she runs her nonprofit funeral home, Undertaking L.A. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about dying well and the lessons we can learn from those who have already died. I still remember an expression I heard when uh, I was in my teenage years uh, decades ago where someone said, uh, if you want to learn about man's failures, uh, read the newspaper from the first page onwards. If you want to know about man's uh, successes, read it from the last page. This is Lux Narayan. And those were days when the newspaper had just one section and the obituaries were typically towards the end of the paper. And uh, that's essentially what they meant. And I I couldn't agree more because, you know, the kind of lives that are celebrated in the obituaries that that are written about by an editorial team are typically lives well led. Ever since Lux was a teenager, he's been fascinated with the way people are memorialized in print. It kind of paints a rich tapestry of the different kinds of things people do and are remembered for. And I think it's a very beautiful reminder of uh, the kind of legacy people leave and how they made an impact and just, just the broad canvas that our world is, right? Here's more from Lex Narayan on the TED stage. I read the obituaries almost every day. My wife understandably thinks I'm rather morbid to begin my day with scrambled eggs and a Let's see who died today. (laughs) In my day job, I run a company that focuses on future insights that marketers can derive from past data, a kind of rear-view mirror analysis. And we began to think, what if we held a rear-view mirror to obituaries from the New York Times? Were there lessons on how you could get your obituary featured, even if you aren't around to enjoy it? (laughs) And so... We looked at the data. 2,000 editorial non-paid obituaries over a 20-month period between 2015 and 2016. What did these 2,000 deaths, rather lives, teach us? Let's look at age, the average age at which they achieved things. That number is 37. What that means is you've got to wait 37 years before your first significant achievement that you're remembered for, on an average, 44 years later, when you die at the age of 81, on an average. (laughs) Talk about having to be patient. Of course, it varies by profession. If you're a sports star, you'll probably hit your stride in your 20s. And if you're in your 40s like me, you can join the fun world of politics. Politicians do their first and sometimes only commendable act in their (laughs) mid-40s. So in your talk, you have this beautiful, like, word um, chart, right? You've, we've seen these before, right? where you've got, like, small, teeny tiny words and big words to show which words showed up the most in, in these obituaries. And amazingly, when you, when you show this on, on screen, there's one word that stands out above all others, and it's help. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. I, I was fascinated when I saw that word because when you're analyzing 2,000 paragraphs of text, you wouldn't expect one or two words to stick out and stand out um, as prominently as this did. And what we found fascinating when we went through some of those uh, descriptors was the fact that the help took on different contexts. Um, for example, Reverend Rick Curry who you know helped uh, veterans and disabled people by running writing and acting workshops. Uh, there's Jocelyn Cooper, who was a grassroots organizer in Brooklyn in the 1960s, and she helped pave the way for the first African American woman to sit in the U.S. Congress. There was um, someone who passed away a few weeks ago who helped uh, create the character of Spider-Man. It's beautiful that. You know, the people who are remembered for things that they did helped do so many things in the most obvious sense of the word in terms of helping people. 
but in some not so obvious context as well in terms of helping a discovery helping a creation or or simply helping explain something it, it was beautiful how that word stood out so strongly having read all these obits and and having sort of crunched the numbers and then and just thinking about it could you could you argue that in some ways uh, we live are a part of our lives or or a big part of our lives in preparation for death i think we do even even if we aren't um, directly thinking about it there there is certainly a part of us that is cognizant about the passage of time about the fact that there is less time to do some of those things that we set out to do and and you see that in different ways you see people crossing a certain age or a certain point in life when they say okay i want to actually do those things that i promised i would do 20 years ago and all of that even if not articulated in the context of death is rooted in 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 some way realizing the passage of time and and therefore preparing for for a time when we're not going to be around We uncovered many lessons from lives well led and what those people immortalized in print could teach us the exercise was a fascinating testament to the kaleidoscope that is life and even more fascinating was the fact that the overwhelming majority of obituaries featured people famous and non-famous who did seemingly extraordinary things they made a positive dent in the fabric of life they helped So ask yourselves as you go back to your daily lives how am i using my talents to help society because the most powerful lesson here is if more people lived their lives trying to be famous in death the world would be a much better place thank you Lex Narayan he runs a social media analysis company called Unmetric you can find his full talk at ted.com I'm going to live till I die. I'm going to laugh instead of cry. I'm going to take the town and turn it upside down. I'm going to live, live, live until I die. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on Dying Well this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, you can go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out the TED app or ted.com. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Motasham, with help from Daniel Shukin and Megan Shellong. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Live, live, live.